Um, okay, today's episode is uh, with Cannon Shan again. He's a partner at Paul Weiss, and he practices um, appellate law and regularly practices before the Supreme Court. I think he's argued over 36 cases there. Um, fantastic lawyer, um, incredible background, went to um, undergrad at Harvard, then went to Oxford, then went to Harvard Law School. Um just incredibly brilliant attorney with an incredible sort of track record of success at the Supreme Court. Um, and uh, it was a lot of fun for him to kind of take us into what it's like to practice at the Supreme Court, um, what it was like for him. He, he um, was a clerk for Justice Scalia, and he talks a little bit about what that was like, what it was like meeting some of the justices there, including Sandra Day O'Connor. He kind of shares a little bit about her, which was really uh, interesting. Um, for me personally, one of the things that I enjoyed, um, you may or may not, but we, we spoke for about the first 20 minutes uh, about growing up in Lawrence, Kansas, um, a little bit about KU sports, um, and I enjoyed that conversation. If you're not into sports or Kansas in any way, you can skip, uh, skip forward about the first 20 minutes of the episode, but I think... Uh, you'll enjoy that. And I think it's, it's a good, you know, a window into Cannon's background and, and where he grew up and, and what he did. He talks about, um, being interested in journalism, uh, initially and not having an interest in, in law. And that kind of came later, but, but, um, he talks about, um, his early days of, of college and, and writing for the paper and some of those things. And I think so, you know, even if you're not into Kansas and sports, I think there's still something there that you'll be interested in. Um, ultimately at the end of the day, uh, Cannon is just a fantastic person. Um, he's an interesting person. I'm going to give a little bit of a reveal here. He turned, he tells us all he's a Swifty. Uh, and so that was an interesting sort of nugget that he gave us. He's a great guy. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Um, and so without further ado, this is the episode with Cannon Shanmigan. All right. Cannon, thank you so much for joining us here uh, on the Attorney Lounge. It's great to be back with you, Brian. Yeah, very much appreciated. So uh, before, uh, before we started start the show, I told you I was going to hit you with the curveball. So this is the toughest question of the day, and here here it is. So I'm going to see if you think this is the one that I thought I was going to uh, ask you to. So the Kansas City Royals are building a new stadium in downtown Kansas City. So the question is, if the Kansas City Royals copy the design – of the Camden Yards, does Camden Yards have a trade dress infringement claim? <laughs> so that's a great question. That was the subject, essentially, of the moot court final when I was in law school. And then somewhat strangely, the same issue came before the Supreme Court when I was a law clerk there. And Did it really? Scalia wrote the opinion for the court, and it involved kind of an arcane question of whether or not for trade dress, you have to have a secondary meaning, I think, associated with that trade dress. And mm -hmm. it's kind of an interesting question whether Camden Yards would qualify. I think I might have to take the Fifth Amendment on that because that <laughs> might actually happen. We'll see what the design of the new ballpark looks like. But well, um, I, yeah, I don't think they're going to copy Camden Yards. But as I was doing a little research and I was watching the, the, for people that don't know, this was the moot court competition at Harvard, which Cannon won in 1998, him and his team. And uh, you were arguing this, this type of case. And I, I couldn't believe it when I'm listening to it. You're 25 years old. You're arguing this in front of Justice Souter, I believe. And yep, that's right. Circuit, yeah. And you had the presence of mind in the midst of that. You didn't look nervous at all. And you got a reference to the Kansas City Royals into that moot core competition. I thought that's absolutely fantastic. I mean, not only was it a spectacular argument, but you got a Royals reference in there. And I thought that was incredible. So congratulations to you. Well, it was really a great experience to have the privilege of arguing in the moot court final. At the time, I had no idea. And I'm sure we'll talk about this over the course of the podcast, I had no idea I wanted to be an appellate lawyer. And maybe the fact that I enjoyed it was in some sense an early sign that that was going to be my calling. But I just remember I was very nervous because it was really the first time 
I had done anything like that. The moot court final at Harvard is a pretty big deal, Mm -hmm. so much so that they have a courtroom full of people there. And then they had an overflow room directly underneath us where the students would come. And at least in those days, would often have a beer or two before the start of the moot court final. So it was an unusually raucous atmosphere for an appellate argument, but really an extraordinary experience. And if if you told me then, I would eventually appear in front of um, a justice suitor in his real life form as a Supreme Court justice, I never would have believed you. Well, it, it was, I mean, it was really, really fun to watch. For anybody that's out there interested, I highly recommend you go. It's on YouTube. You can go see it. And personally, I thought you got robbed in terms of the best oral argument. Your partner got that award. Well, I would respectfully dissent. Uh, my partner is one, my dear friend, Amanda Tyler, who's now a law professor at Berkeley, and she did a fabulous job in that argument. So she, she did, but I, I mean, I guess maybe I'm just a homer. I was, I was pulling for you. So, but it was great that your, your team won. So, okay. So a little background then. I want to get into your practice at Paul Weiss and the things that you do and some of your career stuff. But if the audience will indul- indulge us, I'm going to go back a little bit and talk about Kansas and how we both grew up in Lawrence, Kansas. So I want to talk a little bit about growing up in Kansas and then kind of weave that into how you got interested in law in the first place. But so I, I ended up moving to Kansas when I was like four years old. So it's like the earliest memory that I have. W- were you born in Lawrence or were, did you move there at some point? I, I don't. Yeah. So, Brian, I was born in Lawrence. I was born at LMH. My dad was a postdoctoral student at KU. And um, then we actually moved away fairly soon after that to Wichita because my dad got his first teaching job at Wichita State. He was a professor of electrical engineering. And then we moved back to Lawrence when uh, I was about seven years old. And then Mm -hmm. I, I would live there for the rest of my childhood. Okay. Yeah. It's such a great place, I think, to grow up, to grow up. It's a, it's really is a melting pot. People think of Kansas. I don't think they really in their mind, if they haven't been there before, don't realize how really pretty it is and, and what a great diverse community Lawrence is. And with the college campus there, it's at a, it's just an amazing place, I think, to, to grow up, to raise a family. I had just the, I live in Phoenix now. Obviously, you don't live there either, but it, I have the, just the fondest memories of, of Lawrence. And so I, any fond memories that you have of, of growing up there, memories, things that you did? Well, it was and is a great college town. It's changed a lot, Brian, since we grew up there because it's grown enormously. I think when we first moved there or moved back there in 1980, it was about 40,000 people. It's now closer to a hundred. And I think in part, that's because the quality of life there is so high. The schools are extraordinary. I have so many memories of growing up in Lawrence. It was a great place to grow up. Like many college towns, first and foremost, there's such a premium on education and the Lawrence public schools then as now turned out so many people who went on to great things in so many different walks of life. It's funny, a lot of my memories um, revolve around sports because when you grow up in a college town, it's all about sports. And at the time, uh, Lawrence High School, where we both graduated, was the only game in town. It was the only high school in Lawrence. And as Lawrence was growing, it was the biggest high school in the state of Kansas, which meant that we were good at most sports. I have vivid memories of watching Danny Manning play for Lawrence High School, which he did for a year before he went on to play for the University of Kansas, where, of course, he was an All-American and led us to the national title. And on a legal note, I very well remember the point guard on that team, who was one Sri Srinivasan, who went on to become the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit. And his family and mine were very good friends, because although Lawrence is a diverse town, I think it's safe to say there were not a lot of Indian Americans there. And the two, (laughs) I think, perhaps most prominent Indian families in town, if not the only ones at the time, were were mine and, and Sri's. And that was yeah. a great team, but it amazingly didn't win the state title. The, mm-hmm. the I think the that we won the state title the year before, but I want to yep. say they lost to either Leavenworth or Wyandotte. I think in the state final that year, it was it was Wyandotte. I was I was back in those days. I was a ball boy for, at KU, so I was very fortunate to be able to be a ball boy there for the late great Chuck Newman, who was the uh, equipment manager there. And so we got to do the high school state championship, which was in Allen Fieldhouse. And I remember being there and that was, and I remember Shri as well from the, from the uh, basketball camps, Ted Juno basketball camps and Shri was there. And I just thought he was awesome. He was really fun, outgoing, kind of a funny guy. 
he wouldn't remember me from Adam, but I was a little kid and I looked up to all of these guys and I still do. I still think of it from that perspective of, of these guys, but they had, yeah, Shree, I mean, what a great opportunity to be the point guard on the basketball team with Danny Manning. That team, I believe that year also had Lee Stevens who ended up playing like 13 years in the major leagues in baseball. They just had, yeah, and then Danny Manning, obviously, and then Shree has been wildly successful also, I think, has argued some cases before the Supreme Court, just like you, and and is now the chief justice in the chief judge in the circuit court, I believe, or whatever you could, yeah, the D.C. circuit court, yeah. So at any rate, yes, I have those same memories, and very cool. And the year before that they, they did, the year they won it was Chris Piper. Yeah, uh, that's right. Who, who ended up also uh, Chris Piper and Danny Manning together won the 1988 national championship at KU. So yeah. And I have a lot of memories of Allen Fieldhouse at Memorial stadium. It's funny, Brian, when I think back on on my childhood, the Jayhawks really only got good at basketball around my high school years. And Mm -hmm. actually in the early eighties, there were a lot of terrible teams. I mean, I remember going to games in a half full Allen Fieldhouse and the games would be so bad that my friends and I would go and play underneath the bleachers basically during the game because back Same. then they had those bleachers that, that pulled out from the wall yeah. and they would just push them back in after the games. Um, those days are long since gone. But I would guarantee team, you, Cannon, I think we we probably played cup ball together under there. I mean, we're the same age. I because I have that exact same memory. We would play. We would wrap up those little hot dog wrappers and we would play underneath the bleachers. It was Ted Owens, and they had Kelly Knight and Kerry Bogney and some of those players, and we, we were okay, but not great. But it was not what it is today. Um, yeah, it was really with the arrival of of Larry Brown, and then of course the national championship in 1988 that KU basketball mm-hmm. started on the extended run of success that it's had. But yep. there were certainly times when you could hear a pin drop in Allen Fieldhouse, and it's kind of hard to imagine that today. So one of the one of the best memories I have growing up there was the 1988 national championship. So I guess one of my questions for you, I mean, I remember that day and almost every minute of that experience. Do you recall where you were and what you did after after we won that? Well, I do. It was my junior year of high school and I was such a diehard Jayhawk fan back then that I actually couldn't bear to watch the game with anyone else because it was just too stressful. I couldn't uh-huh. even watch it with my family. So I had this little TV in my bedroom by then, and I watched the game on that little TV with no one else there. My, <laughs> the rest of my family was downstairs, but I just couldn't couldn't wow. handle it. And um, yeah. uh, we didn't do anything too exciting um, afterward. I do remember the parade uh, a few days later, uh, which was very special. But that was such a magical team because it was relatively unexpected, even though we had Danny Manning. I think yep. they were a sixth seed, if I remember correctly. They were yeah, one of the like lowest-seeded mm-hmm. teams to win a national title at the time. And they went on that incredible run and then of course beat their then great rivals, Oklahoma in the national championship game. And it was an extraordinary game, 50 to 50 at halftime, the best half of college basketball, probably in, in college basketball history, the first half, and then just to grind it out the victory at the end. And, and that was definitely one of the great sports moments of my life. Yeah. Mine too. And that team, Danny and the miracles, unbelievable season my rec my recollection after we won the game is i opened the front door of the house and it was like we were under assault like it, it, you just heard fireworks and cheering and horns honking and it was just madness and then we went down to massachusetts street and we got in the back of my dad's truck and we're just driving down high-fiving everybody i mean you could the place was packed and then the next day i think they pulled the bus into memorial stadium and they they did a big celebration there and it was just 24 hours of just bedlam and nonsense and so much fun. And we had a big weekend this weekend, big win at Indiana. I have a fond memory of Jock Vaughn hitting a big three-pointer. That was just, some people were posting that on Twitter recently to beat Indiana when Bobby Knight was still the coach and I was at school at KU. And so I don't know, what do you, any thoughts on the current KU team and, and our prospects for another championship this year? Well, they're really good and they're really stacked and hopefully that's not going to put too much pressure on the team as the season goes on because I'm sure that they're going to 
continue to be ranked among the top teams in the country as we get closer to tournament time. But it's just so much fun in particular to go back to Allen Fieldhouse. I mean, every time I go back there, just have so many memories of going to games with my late father there and so many great games, including that Indiana game. That was when I was actually living in England and I was back for the holidays and went to that game. And I think Mm. my parents were actually out of town. So I think I went to that game with a friend and that was one of the great games in the history of Allen Fieldhouse with Jacques Vaughn hitting that three pointer as time expired. Just an extraordinary game right before Christmas, as I recall. Yeah. It was like right before the Christmas break. Like I think students had just finished finals. It was just like, (laughs) and Damon Bailey, I think was the point guard for Indiana and just the presence of Bobby Knight and the striped pants and into Allen Fieldhouse. It was just a lot of fun and, Another good memory that we have. Okay, now we don't normally talk about this too, but I just want to bring it up briefly and get your, since we don't get the opportunity very often, but KU football is pretty good too. And Lance Lightfoot. Well, it's it's great to see after so many hopeless years at Memorial Stadium watching really bad teams get beaten by Nebraska 52 to nothing every year. (laughs) The renaissance of KU football has been just spectacular and Coach Leipold deserves all of the credit for that. And I really hope we'll have him for many years to come because what he's building there is really exciting. We're actually, two of my boys and I are going to be going down to the bowl game in Phoenix right after uh, Christmas, which we're really looking forward to. And I think there's a lot of excitement around the football team with the rebuilding of the football stadium, which is already underway. And it's just so important in this day and age for a top university like KU, KU to have a good football team. It's kind of where all the re- revenue is generated for the athletic program. And so hopefully the success will continue. Yeah, I hope so. And it's just so much fun to be around that environment. I've gone back to a couple, I went back to the Duke game last year and just the environment around the stadium is fall is my favorite time to be back there in Kansas and you got the tailgates going on and just the energy around campus. So it's, it is a lot of fun and it's nice to not have the entire stadium full of Nebraska fans. That that's my memory of growing up was there's like 5,000 KU fans and the 45,000 Nebraska fans and they beat us like by 50. Well, it's truly one of the best settings in America for college football. It's just that the team has not always lived up to that. And (laughs) now that the team's good, I mean, there's just nowhere better to spend a fall Saturday afternoon. Yeah, I agree. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more question about Kansas, if and then we'll veer off the topic. Then I want to get into your career. But any thoughts on the Kansas City Chiefs? Big win yesterday. We needed it. Playing against the Patriots. Sorry, David, our producer who's from Boston. But we needed that win big time, and hopefully we can turn this around Tony dropped another pass yesterday. Just Mahomes is just going to keep firing bullets and hopefully we can pull this thing together at the end. So I don't know about you, Brian, but uh, it's funny because the Chiefs, like the Jayhawks, were not very good at football for most of my childhood. And uh, all of a sudden we have as good a football team as anyone. Uh, But I find that it makes watching the games a lot more stressful now than it used to be. Maybe it's just (laughs) the heightened expectations around this team that that Mm -hmm. Patrick Mahomes is going to do something magical every week. But I actually feel pretty good about the team. I was at the Buffalo game at Arrowhead the week before this Mm -hmm. past weekend, and they lost that game. But I think the team is starting to come together. There are a lot of good teams, though, in the AFC in particular. So the playoffs are going to be challenging regardless, but I'm cautiously optimistic at this point. We'll see what the next few weeks bring and where they end up in the playoff seedings. But I think the team is starting to come together. Yeah, I feel, I feel the same way. It's, it's sort of hard to bet against Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid. Our defense is amazing. And, and so, and they've been there before. So hopefully fingers crossed, we'll, uh, we'll survive this. And hopefully the, the Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift thing is not a distraction for the team. And and we can roll in and have another season. These things don't come along that often. You get a little window of opportunity to have a chance of winning a Super Bowl. You got to take it because it could be another 30 years before we see something like this again. Well, that's for sure. And uh, the Taylor Swift thing is um, kind of fun, frankly. Um, I'm a Swifty, a, a known Swifty. I love her music. Uh, we actually went to her concert at Arrowhead. I took uh, Vicky and the boys and nice. we had a great time. Um, and it doesn't seem to be a distraction for the team so far. Uh, we'll see. It's kind of amazing to me, actually, how well they seem to have handled all of the attention 
they came with us and really is extraordinary. I happened to be at the Chiefs game in New York when they were playing the Jets. And I, I posted something on social media about this. As it turned out, I was sitting about 10 seats down from Taylor Swift. And <laughs> when she came out into the box where she was sitting, it, it just is hard to describe that feeling when all of a sudden 80,000 people seem to turn around and take photographs at the same time. But that was basically what happened. She's probably the most yeah. famous person in the world right now, uh, certainly one of the most popular. And um, so the fact that she's dating a player on our very historically unfashionable local football team is pretty extraordinary. <laughs> it is. Well, maybe there's some pictures out there with with you in it. When if there's eighty thousand people taking pictures and you're pretty close to her, maybe you. I only if somebody accidentally was using a wide angle. <laughs> oh shoot. <laughs> okay. Well, well, I appreciate the discussion on Kansas and Kansas City. I will veer off of that now to the point of the podcast, which is really to talk about your career, how you became interested in law, and so for. I think for people out there, a lot of the questions that I'm asking the guests are just kind of how you got interested in law in the first place. Like when, when did you really even begin to think about law school as a possible option? I think it was really in college, Brian. Uh, it had not been my lifelong goal growing up. I think my lifelong goal was to play for the Kansas City Royals. And when that didn't work out, I started thinking about a, 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 a professional career and Again, in, in high school, if anything, I was kind of a math and science kid. I was really not somebody who you would have profiled as a future lawyer. I really didn't do a debate. I did one year of debate my senior year at Lawrence High. But other than that, I didn't do any of the other things that sort of mark out people as potential future lawyers. And then when I got to college, I was really torn between law and journalism. You would have no reason to remember this, Brian, but I was the editor of the the budget, the high school paper at Lawrence High. And then I went on um, at Harvard to be the editor of The Independent, which is the weekly newspaper there. I spent okay. two summers working for the Kansas City Star on the sports desk, uh, oh, which cool. was really a great life experience. But even then, and this was really before the advent of the internet, it looked really hard to try to make a career in print journalism. And so I was fortunate enough in my senior year in college to win a Marshall scholarship to spend two years in England. And basically before I left, I decided to defer my admission to law school until I came back and um, then went to law school as soon as I got back from England. And uh, it's a decision I really have never regretted for a minute. It's such an incredibly interesting profession. There are so many different great things you can do with a law degree. And I really am, am glad that I made that choice. But at the same time, I do occasionally wonder about the road not taken. I wonder what would have happened <laughs> if I'd become a journalist. But yeah, I think we all think back on what could have been if you made these different choices and stuff. But that being the case, I, I, I would imagine that the, the years you spent writing and preparing probably have translated in some way into assisting you in law school and with what, what you do now where the brief writing for an appellate practice is so critical. And uh, maybe maybe even if it, you're not le writing for a legal audience, still the, the practice of just writing, I think, had to have helped you at some level. One of the things I often say, Brian, is that journalism, but particularly sports journalism, is great training because you learn not only how to write, but to write really quickly. Sports journalists in particular have to write on deadline, and it is not unusual for sports writers to basically have to send their story at the end of the game or five minutes after the end of the game. And mm -hmm. so you're constantly thinking, what is the story here? What is the storyline? What's the right angle? You're constantly updating what you've written. And that is a really important skill for a lawyer to have because so much of what we do, particularly in my line of work, is writing. And you need to be able to write not just well, but quickly because of the sheer volume of what we do. One of the things I was going to ask you about, too, before we get into your career was just sort of your time at Harvard. And there's such a I went to the University of Kansas, great school, love my time there, but it's not Harvard. And obviously it's been, I remember my first year of law school watching the movie, The Paper Chase, and uh, you have these sort of ideas of what that might be like when you're there. What what were your recollection of, of, of going to school at Harvard and going to law school and the difficulty and the, the pros and cons of that, I guess? So I was fortunate enough to go to Harvard, both for college and for law school. And 
I would say the law school experience was, frankly, in some ways less enjoyable. It was very demanding. It was hard work. The law school at the time was not a particularly kind and gentle place. And I think it was, frankly, a little bit of a shock to my system. I came back from two years in England where I was working on a dissertation and then all of a sudden was in this fairly competitive environment at the law school. And it frankly took me a little while, I think, to find my footing in law school. But once I did, and and once I developed kind of a core group of friends and started doing things like the moot court competition that I really enjoyed, I think I found that it was a really enriching experience. And I had so many great professors uh, at the law school. That was at a time when there were legendary professors like David Shapiro and Richard Fallon and Dan Meltzer and so many others who were really formative in terms of the way that I thought about the law. And so it was a great experience. And I think I look back on it probably more fondly than I felt about it at the time. Well, it was, I mean, we talked about the beginning, but it, the, the moot core competition, the experiences you get from things like that, I mean, the opportunity to argue a case in front of a Supreme Court um, judge at that point, I mean, it's, that's, that's a pretty amazing experience. And I'm sure the talent around you was pretty impressive as well. So I could imagine it was pretty, that's what I would envision is that it's going to be extremely competitive and difficult, but, but probably sometimes having some pinch yourself type moments. Yeah. And so many people in my law school class and my contemporaries around my class have gone on to such great things in the law. And it's really amazing to see that. And so incredibly satisfying to see people go on to be Supreme Court justices and and judges and and law school deans and university presidents and law firm partners and the like. And I think that that's, when I think back on my law school experience, I think the people who I got to know in my class and again, in the surrounding classes were by far the most enriching part of the experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think in my career, I, you know, the same sort of thing, the people you meet, the network that you develop ends up to me, ends up the personal relationships you build with people are the most rewarding part, I think, of any career that you're in. And and that's cool to see other people be successful that you sort of remember as a kid that you're growing up with. <laughs> and they go on to do these amazing things. And Real quick, I want to recognize our sponsor, Array. Array handles all the details of litigation so that you can focus on winning your case. They take care of forensic collection, e-discovery, managed review, record retrieval, court reporting, legal staffing and recruiting, trial support, you name it. I'm the general counsel at Array, so I may be a little bit biased, but I was also a client before I started working there too. I've used them on various matters, and they've always delivered. If you're involved in a lawsuit, make Array your first call, and they'll help you get organized right from the beginning. You can reach out to me or visit TrustArray.com. Now, back to the pod. So one of the amazing things you did to you were able to clerk at the Supreme Court, you clerked for Justice Scalia. And so what I'm curious about there is just if you could take us there and explain what that experience is like. I think that's for anyone in law school. I think everybody thinks about that opportunity is kind of the holy grail when you're in law school of an opportunity to eventually clerk for the Supreme Court. What was that like, do you remember getting the phone call or letter that where you got that clerkship and then just sort of walk us through what that sort of what that was like when that came came to be? Sure. Well, Brian, I remember like it was yesterday when I got the phone call inviting me to interview with Justice Scalia. And that in and of itself was a pretty intimidating experience because mm-hmm. Justice Scalia, of course, was one of the legendary figures in the law. I had only been to the Supreme Court, I think, once by that point. And of course, I'd never met Justice Scalia. And so it was a pretty daunting experience. I remember the knot that developed in my stomach as I was walking up the steps of the Supreme Court for that interview. And Justice Scalia, of course, was incredibly charming as well as intimidating. And uh, I remember uh, the interview uh, uh, pretty well, and it, it, it seemed to go okay, but... I remember coming out of that interview thinking this is probably the one and only time I'm ever going to meet Justice Scalia. And that was a cool experience. But if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And so when I got the call from Justice Scalia offering me the job, I think I could scarcely hide my 
um, surprise as well as my excitement. Mm-hmm. It was a, an extraordinary experience and it's kind of hard for me. And I suspect for other Scalia clerks to disaggregate the e- extraordinariness of just clerking at the Supreme Court from the particular extraordinariness of clerking for Justice Scalia because he was such a towering figure. And the first few weeks were definitely scary because here I was, a 20-something-year-old recent law school graduate in chambers with one of the great legal minds of our time. And you certainly have moments of feeling, boy, I'm just totally not worthy for this. But what was funny was that over the course of a year, I think you would progressively stop thinking about that so much and realize that like any other clerkship, what the judge or justice wants you to do is to really sort of test their own thinking so that they can make good and wise decisions. And that was certainly how Justice Scalia felt about his law clerks. He did not want his law clerks to be yes men or yes women. He wanted them to disagree with him. And we had some really just incredible discussions about the law he would get excited about the smallest cases. And so if you had a case about something like whether you could trademark the design of a baseball stadium, he would be all over it. Those were the sorts of cases he really loved. And he was such a a great legal technician as well as such an incredible writer. So it was a, a, a brilliant learning experience. And to be behind the scenes at the Supreme Court for a year was just an incredible privilege. I mean, I would remember we'd work pretty late sometimes. And I'd remember walking through the great hall of the Supreme Court on the way out of the building and just thinking what an honor it is, particularly for me as the son of immigrants, to have that chance to be behind the scenes for a year at the Supreme Court. It's an experience that even now, almost 25 years later, I still think back on with a a sense of awe that I had that opportunity. Yeah, it, it, it really is amazing. I've, I've never been inside the Supreme Court. I've been up the steps. I took a picture there with my nephew uh, when we took uh, our family there, um, but never been in. And it's just, uh, you know, obviously the pinnacle for any lawyer and uh, the awe-inspiring sort of history of it um, is, um, it's just fascinating to think about what it would have been like to to be there. And I've heard different people who have been clerks and sort of getting to know some of the justices personally and what they're like behind the scenes. And being from Arizona and with the recent passing of Sandra Day O'Connor, do you do you recall any experiences with her when you were there? Well, I do. It's funny because one of the remarkable things about the Supreme Court is what a relatively small place it is as a working environment, because each justice has uh, four law clerks, they typically have two or three secretaries or others who help with the running of chambers. And then there's a relatively small staff in the marshal's office and the clerk's office that runs the court on a day-to-day basis. And so you really get to know everybody, and that includes the other justices, um, some more than others. But certainly over the course of the year, I had interactions with all of them. And there was nothing unusual about that. All of the law clerks did have interactions with the justices from other chambers. I was telling someone just this morning, because as we're recording this, the court is in the process of memorializing Justice Connor. She's lying in repose at the Supreme Court today as we're speaking. And I was saying to somebody this morning that I found Justice O'Connor a little bit intimidating because she was such a historic figure But she also had this incredible, somewhat sardonic wit about her, and she could, in a cutting remark, really sort of get to the heart of something. Mm -hmm. But she was really a a, a human being with uh, just an incredible touch and grace about her. And I think while she was on the Supreme Court, it was no accident that the justices all got got along with each other so well. And I think that was in large part because she was kind of the social glue of the institution. She was somebody who everybody got along well with, who everybody really respected. And in these very fractious times, I often think back on the Supreme Court back then. And although they disagreed on some pretty profound legal issues, it was a court where there were really tight personal relationships across the court. And I think in large part, that was due to Justice O'Connor. Yeah, she she She's truly amazing. She's obviously revered here in Arizona. She lived not too far from from where I'm at, as a matter of fact. And and I met her one time, and it was an amazing experience. 
And it was in a small group. It was a group setting with some in-house attorneys here in town. And and she couldn't have been more gracious with her time and was happy to take pictures and 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 talk. And she she talked about growing up in Arizona and just her fond memories of it. And 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 when she I, I think she was just such an amazing person. Like obviously incredibly intelligent and and a huge impact on this country in what she did at the Supreme Court, but she was just an amazing individual as well. And if I recall she retired from the Supreme Court to care for her husband, if I recall. And like in a mate, like he had supported her through all those years and she uh, retired, I think, to to take care of him. And I may maybe misremembering that, but I don't you can correct me if I'm wrong. No, that's exactly <laughs> correct. Her husband, John, developed uh, Alzheimer's disease and she retired, I believe, in 2005 to look after him and really uh, a, a extraordinary love story uh, between the two of them with John really giving up his career to support her as the first female Supreme Court justice and then her retain, returning the favor in his later years to look after him. Yeah. Yeah. Truly, truly amazing. So what an incredible opportunity for you to get to work in, in the same proximity as her and on the, on the court at that time. So then, okay, after the after after your clerkship, you go into private practice and you started at Kirkland and Ellis. And at this point, are you starting to think you want to be an appellate lawyer? Is this kind of the where your where your head's at at that time? Maybe just a bit, Brian. But it's funny when I finished up clerking at the Supreme Court, I was by no means certain that I wanted to be an appellate lawyer. I had the chance when I was a law clerk to watch a lot of great Hall of Fame lawyers do Supreme Court arguments, people like Ted Olson and uh, John Roberts, Seth Waxman, Carter Phillips, Ed Needler, Michael Dreeben, so many others. And yet I was not at all sure that it was something that I wanted to spend all my time doing. And so I went to Kirkland and Ellis in the fall of 2000, really with a view to trying out appellate work, but also doing some other litigation work as well. And as it happens, I ended up focusing almost exclusively on appellate work fairly quickly because I started working with Ken Starr, the former Solicitor General, who was then the head of Kirkland's appellate practice. And that was at a time when relatively few firms had dedicated appellate practices, certainly nothing like what we have today. And I just really enjoyed working with Ken, and I enjoyed the challenge of brief writing and putting together legal arguments in appellate briefs. And over time, I found myself working more and more with Ken. And then one day I woke up and that was pretty much all that I was doing. And I was totally fine with that. And so that was really how I started down the path of being an appellate lawyer. And then after that, in 2004, I had the opportunity to join the Solicitor General's office, the office that handles all of the government's litigation before the Supreme Court. And that was the point at which I really committed myself to a career as a Supreme Court and appellate litigator. I don't think that that's a job that you take unless you're pretty sure that that's what you want to focus on. And at that point, I made that choice and really didn't look back. And was that, I'm assuming that that was the first opportunity then you had to actually argue before the Supreme Court? Before the Supreme Court, yes. I'd had the chance to do exactly one argument in private practice before the Tenth Circuit, our home circuit, mm -hmm. and I really enjoyed that experience. But the reality was I was still relatively young. I was, I think, 31 years old when I was hired by uh, Ted Olson, the, the then Solicitor General, to work in that office. And so my second oral argument was before the Supreme Court of the United States, and I think it wow. was just as well that I was so young because I was probably too young to know how scared I should have been. Okay, so your first oral argument before the Supreme Court, do you recall what that felt like and the experience and the nerves going into it and kind of paint a picture for us of, of what that was like the first time you you had that opportunity? Yeah, I was pretty nervous. As I said, probably not as nervous as I should have been, but it's such an intimidating atmosphere to argue before the Supreme Court, particularly for the first time. I think it was especially intimidating for me to be appearing in front of my former boss, Justice Scalia, because he had a, a reputation for being particularly hard on his former clerks, perhaps uh, on the theory that if uh, we had survived a year in chambers, 
that he could be tough on us at oral argument and, and we'd be able to handle it. And so I just remember going into the courtroom and just feeling that feeling of being sick to my stomach. And I must have looked that way because I was handling a criminal case and the deputy solicitor general in charge of criminal cases, Michael Dreven, was sitting with me at counsel table. And at one point he leaned over to me and said, Cannon, if you're going to throw up, throw up on opposing counsel and not on me, which I think is still good career advice. If you're going to throw up on somebody, throw up on the other guy. But but I somehow got through the experience. And I'll tell you, after yeah. that first argument, I, I, I've never felt that same sort of sense of just um, gut-churning nervousness in the Supreme Court. I think yeah. the difference between a first argument and a second argument is enormous because once you've done it and you've gotten through it, I think you have the confidence that you're going to be able to do it again. Yeah, that makes sense. It's probably like your first at-bat in the major leagues. I'm sure everybody remembers it. It's You get your first time and then... After that, it's kind of like you got your sea legs and you get in the batter's box. Uh, again, it doesn't feel quite quite the same. Do you, do you recall, did you win that case? Yes, we did. And yes. I think in large part that was because there was a bit of a tradition that they would give lawyers from the Solicitor General's office for their first argument, either an argument that they couldn't win or an argument that they couldn't lose. And I think that one was in the latter category. <laughs> <laughs> that's that was nice of them to do that. Um, and so now, correct me if the numbers are wrong, but I I read you've you've argued now thirty six cases before the Supreme Court. Is that number still correct? Yeah, I think so. And do you have any idea what your record is? Is that a good question? Should I ask yeah, that question? I don't. It's even It's actually know. funny. I have no idea. I know that I've won more than I've lost, but I've actually never gone back and figured that out. I think in part because. Once you've done this for long enough, I think you have the humility to realize that it's not just about you. If you lose a case, sometimes it's because you've got a tough argument. And if you win a case, frankly, it's often because you've got the law on your side, not because of anything brilliant you've done at oral argument. And mm -hmm. so every so often I go back and figure that out. But I would be completely stumped if you asked me what my record was today. Well, it makes sense. I mean, because you kind of dealt with the hand that you're given and you make the most of it. And yeah, I, I would imagine that. Well, let me ask you this. I guess I'll ask it in the form of a question. We were always taught, I did moot court as well, and we were always sort of led to believe that the, the decision had already been made before the oral argument even occurs, that the, the decision is really on the papers. And the oral argument was sort of a way to helpful way for the justices to sort of figure out and, and test some of their theories in the way that they were going to draft their opinion. Is that accurate? Is it not accurate? Is that what, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's probably accurate in a majority of cases, Brian. If you ask me how many cases over the course of my career were cases where the outcome felt genuinely in doubt at oral argument, it would definitely be a minority. It would probably be less than 10 of those 36 cases. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just because, number one, the written briefs are extraordinarily important. That is how the justices form their initial impressions. And I think in the vast majority of cases, justices come into oral argument with some impression about how they're going to vote. And that impression may be more or less deeply felt depending on the nature of the case. But I think it's very hard, particularly in the Supreme Court, to do anything at oral argument that is going to radically move the needle. I think sometimes you can move the needle a little bit. And sometimes there are cases where, you know, the outcome is close, where the justices come in without really strong views. But I think by and large, again, it's a minority of cases where the oral argument genuinely is outcome dispositive. That said, you never know before the oral argument starts whether or not your case is going to be one of those cases. So certainly I prepare for every oral argument as if the outcome is up for grabs. And yeah. I, I prepare to be either pleasantly or unpleasantly surprised. Yeah, I'm sure. And so one of the questions, too, like that's interesting to me is walk me through how do you prepare or oral argument? And then what is the day of the argument like? What Where do you go? What What's the procedure that day of? So like, just sort of take us there with you on a day or the, the days leading up to oral argument and then the day of the oral argument. Sure. So I think what I would say about preparation is that it is a lot less about memorizing every last fact about the case and a lot more uh, about thinking about what the key issues are that are really going to matter to the justices as they're deciding how to vote and coming up with the very best answers to the hardest questions in the case. 
And I would say I spend at least as much time doing that as I do just sitting down and reading through cases as I'm preparing for the argument. Now, in part, that's because if you're very involved in the brief writing, chances are you will have spent that time earlier in the case in really getting to know the area of the law and getting to know the key cases and so forth. But even still, particularly in the last few days before an oral argument, what I'm really thinking about is what are the best answers to the 10 or 12 hardest issues in the case? Because in the Supreme Court in particular, you can be 100% confident that those issues are going to come up in the course of the oral argument. In terms of the day of the oral argument, the Supreme Court is relatively laid back, which may sound like a strange thing to say because it is, after all, the Supreme Court. But uh, the oral arguments start at 10 in the morning. Court expects you to be there by nine in the morning. And so typically what I do is just jump in a, a, a taxi or an Uber and go up to the Supreme Court and leave around 830 or so and go to the court. And one of the nice things, if you're arguing counsel, is they do a pretty good job of looking out for you. And you, of course, have to go through security. But once you do, they get you right up to the courtroom and and then you're ready to go. And so there's nothing terribly weird about the morning of an argument. I wish I could say I have some odd superstitions, but I really don't have any. I don't even have anything in particular that I like to eat for breakfast on the morning of an argument. Um, I usually just eat whatever I'm eating for breakfast those days. And so it's it's funny because I'd say that it feels like any other day, but of course it doesn't. When you're arguing in the Supreme Court, that is always a very special day and it doesn't matter how often you've done it. But once you've done it 30 some times or however many times I've done it, it it, it does feel a little more normal. It, it's a special day, but it's something that I've done a bunch of times before. And I think you have a, a, a routine and, and my routine on argument days is pretty similar to my routine on other days. Hmm. It's actually, I mean, to me, really interesting to hear kind of the the ordinariness of it, if that's a word it, that that to me is. I guess you think of it as this big momentous occasion. And I, I just can't imagine being there and seeing the justices walk in and you, these historic towering figures and they're looking at you and saying, guide us here. You're the expert, like help us understand this case and asking you the most difficult questions and just being having the spotlight on you with, with people like that. It, it it would feel a little bit to me, I think, like trying to face Nolan Ryan that like be hard for me not having been there to focus on the 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 substance of the case but maybe it is one of those things you have that moment and then once you get you see the first fastball then you're kind of like okay I've done this before and you can kind of settle in I think a large part of it is really trying not to think about any of that Brian and when I'm in the courtroom I really try to tune everything out so much so that my wife, who often comes to my arguments, will will tease me afterwards at the fact that sometimes I won't even see her in the audience before the argument. And that's just because I'm so tuned in to yeah. the argument and what's about to happen. And as you say, I think when you're in the batter's box, you're just thinking about how to hit the fastballs that are being thrown at you. And, and you really tune out everything else that's going on. And, and I think if things are going well, and I've heard athletes say this, it feels like the game kind of slows down and it feels as if if you're on top of things, it feels as if um, everything is kind of coming at you at the right speed and not too fast and you can process everything, but it's, it's hard and it, it doesn't get any easier the more often you do it because every case is different and every case has its own challenges. And I often tell my associates, you're only as good as your last case. And that really is true because there's no benefit that you get given just because you've done it a bunch of times. If you have a hard case the 36th time around, the court's going to let you know it. They're not going to say, we're going to give them a pass this time. At least if if that's their rule, I've not benefited from it to the best of my knowledge. I think that's one of the things that makes the job so interesting and, and challenging. Yeah. Well, and it's, it, I feel a little silly asking you the question because we haven't even, like my job not it, here is not this sort of go over your entire credentials, but I, it, it, I would like it. me asking these questions to you is akin to asking like Patrick Mahomes, are you nervous when you play a football game? <laughs> you are one of the most well-respected Supreme court advocates in the country and incredibly impressive resume. And, and so I think part of it is you're just so well-qualified and, and there's something I think 
you have a knack for this because when I watched that moot court competition and I, the fact that you got a Royals reference in when you're arguing your first, like in front of Justice Souter is like, you, you obviously, you obviously are, are built for this kind of work <laughs> because you do have an ability to keep your calm and keep your mind focused on the, on the issues at hand and the job at hand. You're kind to say that I seemed calm even as a 20 something year old in the moot court competition, but I think it's really a learned skill. I think it takes practice and experience to be able to be calm and to kind of process everything that's coming at you. Uh, I think I've, I've uh, often thought that it actually helps to be a Midwesterner because I think we naturally have relatively laid back demeanors to begin with. And yeah. I, I like to think that my de- demeanor in the courtroom is very similar to my demeanor in ordinary life and maybe being the the father of three boys, I have a lot of experience with staying calm when there's a lot of chaos going on in the background. That helps. But it's, uh, it, it, it is really, I think, important as a practicing lawyer to remember that your role is to help the court and your role is not to grandstand or to make a speech. It's to help answer the hardest questions that are on the court's mind. And I think if you remember that that's your role, it's pretty easy to stay calm because Obviously, it's your job to win for your client. That goes without saying. But at the same time, it's their microphone. Your job is to listen to the concerns that the judges or justices have and to address them to the best of your ability. And that's the way I approach every oral argument is to think that my job here is to be helpful to the court and to help the court reach a decision in my client's favor. Yeah. And so with so much experience there, do you have, is there a moment or two that you recall as some of your most memorable favorite type, other than your co-counsel saying, throw up in the other direction. (laughs) Any interesting sort of anecdotes from all that experience? Yeah, it's funny. I don't know that I've had any particularly funny moments in the Supreme Court. I suppose there was maybe one. There was an oral argument I had probably seven or eight years ago. And The chief justice asked me a question and I gave him an answer. And the chief justice looked at me and kind of wrinkled his brow and said, well, Mr. Shamnagam, that was a very lawyerly answer. And I looked at him and without even skipping a beat, I said, well, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. And I wasn't, I rarely use humor in the courtroom and, and maybe that was what passes for humor for me, but uh, it was kind of a funny moment because it was, uh, it, it did seem to disarm the chief, at least momentarily. And he kind of smiled before he started cross-examining me again. But um, some lawyers are a lot better at deploying humor than I am, but that was, that was probably my best moment from a humor standpoint. Yeah. No, that's that's good. I kind of remember you responding somewhat similarly when I was watching that moot court competition. You used the word dialectic something and Souter said to you, he said, what does that mean? And and you said, I don't know, but it's what the Third Circuit said in their opinion. And he said, I didn't understand it when they said it either. And you kind of <laughs> went with it, which I think is sort of great, right? To be have the presence of mind to just kind of roll with it as those questions are coming in is a real skill. See, that was long enough ago, Brian, that I truly didn't remember that until you just said it. You need to go back and watch it again like I did. So I I really enjoyed it. It was good. So do you have any what's coming up on your calendar? Do you have arguments coming up before the Supreme Court? So we have a couple of cases before the court um, for the current uh, Supreme Court term. We have a case called Warner uh, Chapel versus Neely, which is a case involving not trademark law, but copyright law involving the limitations period for uh, copyright damages. And that's a case that uh, I'll be arguing probably in February. And then just last week, the Supreme Court granted review in another of our cases, a case called Connolly versus United States, which involves uh, of all things, the tax treatment of life insurance proceeds that closely held corporations, which are basically family owned corporations, take out on their founders. And so that's a case that will probably be argued in March. So it's going to be a busy start to the new year, but two pretty interesting cases. Yeah. Is that pretty typical? I know the court hears about what, 60 cases a year. Is that right? And so do you typically, how many, how many cases a year do you typically, uh, I mean, is it two or three a year that you tend to argue? I think it really varies, Brian. And in part, that's just because the Supreme Court's docket, at least from the perspective of a lawyer, 
can be somewhat haphazard at any given time. We may have a lot of work in the Supreme Court or less work in the Supreme Court and more work in the lower courts. I think of myself as really an all-purpose appellate litigator. And so that means that my cases at any given time can be in any appeals court around the country. Uh, I guess now that I've argued, I guess, 36 cases in the court, and I've been doing this for almost 20 years, that probably works out to a couple of cases a year, but sometimes it can be more and sometimes it can be less. So you're Paul Weiss, and we kind of talked a little bit about your practice, obviously, now, and it's not just focused on the Supreme Court, but you've argued before all 13 circuit courts. Is that correct? And is that obviously a big part of your practice is not just at the Supreme Court, but other appellate levels as well? And tell us a little bit about kind of your practice now today at Paul Weiss. Uh, That's right, Brian. And I think for any appellate litigator, frankly, the majority of the work that we do is in the courts of appeals, because as you say, the Supreme Court's hearing only around 60 cases a year. Indeed, nowadays, sometimes even fewer than that. And so in any given year, I may be arguing upwards of a dozen cases in the courts of appeals. And uh, those courts, of course, are all over the country. And They do have some subtle regional variations in the Fourth Circuit, which covers Maryland, Virginia, and a few of the states to the south. The judges have a practice of coming down from the bench and shaking counsel's hands after the oral argument. If you don't know that that's coming, that can be a little bit intimidating when you see these judges get up and approach you. (laughs) But there are these sort of quaint local traditions from court to court. And those courts are exceptionally important in our legal system because for most cases, including the sorts of commercial cases that matter the most to my clients, that's often the court of last resort, given how few cases the Supreme Court hears. So a lot of what I do is is just traveling from court to court around the country. I really enjoy doing it. I enjoy those arguments every bit as much as I enjoy the arguments before the Supreme Court. Yeah. Any any cases have you argued before Chief Judge Srinivasan? Uh, I did actually argue in front of him for the first time a couple of years ago. It wasn't the happiest of memories because we lost the case, but it was a real privilege to argue in front of him. One of the things that happens as you get older as a lawyer is you start to argue in front of judges who you've had friendships or relationships with before they become judges. And there's something really enriching about that. It's That can also be a little bit intimidating because the last thing you want to do is to embarrass yourself in front of someone who you knew before they became a judge. But but it was really a, a great privilege to argue in front of Chief Judge Srinivasan. Yeah. Okay. Down to the last couple of questions here, because I know we're running up on time, but what advice do you have for any young attorney or or student who is in law school thinking about a practice as an appellate lawyer? Well, I think it's important to make sure that it's what you want to do, because it is a very niche area of practice in a lot of ways. And uh, of course, it's an area in which you spend a lot of time writing and actually not as much time in court, because whereas a trial lawyer can be at a two or three month long trial for an appellate lawyer, a long oral argument is a 30 minute oral argument and you spend a heck of a lot of time preparing for that 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important to confirm that that's a lifestyle, for lack of a better way of putting it, that you really want to commit to. And so I really encourage young lawyers who are interested in appellate work to do what I did, which is to experiment at least a little bit and perhaps more than I did in different types of work and in particular with different types of litigation before committing to a practice as an appellate lawyer. It's a really competitive specialty. There are lots of people who want to be appellate lawyers and who want to argue cases before the Supreme Court. And so I think it's um, uh, really important to be sure about that before you decide that that's going to be your calling. And one thing I think I would recommend to anybody interested in going uh, into this line of practice is to subscribe to a new podcast called Court Briefs that is hosted by our guest, Canon Shanmigan. So tell us a little bit about that podcast that you have that you're working on. Well, I don't want to overpromise because I think we're probably only planning on having eight or 10 episodes in this first season. But what we really wanted to do was to develop something for our clients primarily to allow our clients who are, again, mostly in the business community to get smart about the latest Supreme Court decisions that matter to them. So we're going to have a real focus on the business docket. I'm going to be joined by some of my colleagues in the Supreme Court and appellate litigation practice here at Paul Weiss. And what we're going to do is break down decisions as they come down. So it'll be primarily in the spring as the court gets into the season of releasing decisions. 
And uh, as the name suggests, these are going to be really short podcasts. They're going to be no more than 10 minutes long, hopefully considerably shorter than that, where we just tell you everything you need to know about these cases and why they matter. And uh, no one's really tried to do anything quite like this. There are a lot of podcasts of general interest about the Supreme Court. They tend to focus on what I'll describe as the cases of of more political interest as opposed to the cases of of business interest. And so that's going to be our focus. And if nothing else, I think we'll have a little bit of fun doing it. Our goal here is not to have some sort of massive audience, but again, really just to to cater to those who might have a, a particular interest in these cases. Yeah. Well, I look, I look forward to, I'm a subscriber. I've subscribed and I look forward to, to listening to it and sharing the opportunity for both of us being first time podcasters and taking a crack at this. I think it's a great, it's a great way to communicate and it's a good for me, kind of a creative outlet. And I'm sure for you, it'll be a great way to get pertinent information out to the business community in a quick, easily digestible way. Yeah. We're really uh, looking forward to doing it. Well, Cannon, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. You've had an amazing career, and I enjoyed going down memory lane with you and talking about Lawrence and KU Sports. So thank you very much. Thank you, Brian, for having me. It's been a real treat and a rock chalk Jayhawk. (laughs) Rock chalk. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. Please remember to subscribe to the Attorney Lounge podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to thank Array for sponsoring this and allowing us to make this possible. And for more information about them, please visit trustarray.com. Thanks. Thanks, Cannon. Thank you, Brian. 